There is no greater name than the name of Jesus. At the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow, every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. It's better to bow the knee right now, isn't it, than at that final day. This is when we bow, and this is when we praise the name of Jesus. I thank Alyssa for that song. Some of you may have gone through a period of time in your life when you were looking for yourself. Did, did you find yourself? Did you like what you found? Don't, don't you hear people still say today, uh, especially when they're kind of drifting away from truth or from appropriate behavior, well, they're just looking for themselves. How do you know when to stop looking? What, what happens that suddenly says, I found myself? Now, people might come to a point in their life where they say something similar to that, and it means that they have found a point in life where they, they have embraced something that would be of meaning, something that would be of value in their lives. But then later, that bug starts biting them again, and they still want to look for themselves. How do you look for yourself? Where do you look for yourself? You pick up a rock? No, I'm not there. If you find yourself, do you like what you found? See, I hear this this terminology today, and I'm still hearing it. They're looking for themselves, and what it basically means is they are not choosing to embrace the life that God has given them, and especially for believers, to embrace what the Lord Himself has revealed to us, who we are. I know who I am by the power of the Holy Spirit. And it's God's Word that tells me who I am. I don't have to look any further. Neither do you, if you know Jesus Christ as your Savior. Open your Bibles, please, to the book of 1 Corinthians and look with me at just the first five verses of this fourth chapter. Do you want to know who you are? You want to find yourself? And again, I am speaking only to those right now who know Christ as their Savior. If you've never trusted Christ, if you only know about Him, if you, if you have a, a mental knowledge of someone who lived 2,000 years ago, but you've never embraced Him, as Pastor Luke was saying earlier, personally, where you've made Him your Savior, These verses really do not apply to you, but my guess is most in this auditorium have at one point or another trusted in Christ as Savior and suddenly we're told who we are. And here it comes. Let a man so consider us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required in stewards that one be found faithful. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by a human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. For I know of nothing against myself, yet I am not justified by this. But he who judges me is the Lord. Therefore, judge nothing before the time until the Lord comes, 
who will both bring to light the hidden things of darkness and reveal the counsels of the hearts. Then each one's praise will come from God. Do you want to know who you are? Do you want to know who I am? I found myself in these verses. And you are in these verses, if you know Christ. You are His servant. Does that grab any of you? Say, oh, well, we've heard that before. No. Do you understand that the Lord says, you and I are His servant? And by the way, the word that's used here for servant is the same word that's used of what is known as the under rowers. Do you know who the under rowers are? They are the slaves in the bottom of the ship, in the worst part, doing the hardest work, pulling the oars. Say, wait a minute. Do you know who you're talking to when you say something like that? Yeah, I think I do. Some of you would say this. I am a business owner. Yeah. But first, you're a servant. You own a business to support yourself. But you are a servant of Christ. Um, This isn't politically correct, but I don't care. I am a housewife. That's a good term, isn't it? What's ever happened to that? Like that's some negative thing. I am a housewife. Okay. But you only do what housewives do because you're first of all a servant. I work in the factory. Well, I work there, but I am a servant of Christ there. Do you get the point here? I'm a teacher. But your first calling is to be a servant of Christ. Everything else becomes secondary. We are servants. You can look no further. Who are you? I'm a servant of Christ. Would that be an appropriate answer? If, if you're looking for yourself? Is that, is that appropriate? Whoa. Is anybody out there? Good, I'm glad. Boy, you know what? We need to sing that song again that we sang just before we had our scripture reading and prayer. That's about the best I can remember us ever singing that song. Wasn't that great? I'm forgetting the words of it now. What? There is a fountain. What? Wasn't that great? It made chills go up and down this servant's back. We're servants. And we have all been given a spiritual trust. I want you to look at something here. Paul is speaking, and he is speaking about himself, but there is a general application of what he is talking about here. And he says this, Let a man so consider us as, first of all, servants of Christ, and secondly, stewards of the mysteries of God. Everyone who is a follower of Christ is not only a servant, but each one of us has been given a spiritual trust. For the Apostle Paul, his spiritual trust involved his being an apostle. 
He was responsible for communicating the gospel and not only communicating it verbally, but to a large extent, inscripturating what God had to say, what the Holy Spirit carried him along to write, so that what he wrote, what was the finished product, was the inspired, infallible, eternal word of God. That was his spiritual trust. You and I are each given different spiritual trusts. We always fall under the umbrella of servant. Under that umbrella, we each have been given natural abilities. Some people can sing. Some people can play a musical instrument. Some people have the, uh, the, the, um, the capability to really relate well to other people. Very outgoing. Very, very friendly. They're, they're the kind of person that would just draw you to themselves. They're just naturally that way. There are some people who by very nature are really good in details and figuring things out. And there are other people who have the, the ability to kind of see the big picture and to take in a, a much broader scope of what's happening. And so there are all sorts of natural abilities that God takes, and then he works those together with the unique spiritual gifts that he gives to everyone who trusts in his Son as their Savior. We have each been given spiritual gifts that we can use for the honor and the glory of God. And so he takes the natural abilities... He takes the spiritual gifts, he takes the training and the experiences of life that we have had, and he entrusts to us a spiritual dimension of accomplishment and fulfillment. For Paul, it was being an apostle. For you and me, it will be something different. And no one else can take your place. Your place is filled by one person and one person only, and that's you. Because God has mingled together your natural capabilities, your spiritual gifts, your experiences, your training, and he has put that all together for a very special purpose. So we've been given that spiritual trust. And then he says this, in light of that trust, what I am looking for from you now is that you be faithful. Do you notice how he goes on to say that this is the greatest quality of the one who has been given this trust? Verse 2, Moreover, it is required in stewards, the ones who have a spiritual trust, that one be found faithful. Now, that faithfulness is something that only you and the Lord know for sure if you are fulfilling. Are you faithful? Nobody else can really tell you whether you are or not. There's evidence, perhaps, on the surface that people can look at and say, well, yeah, this is a faithful individual. Or they might look and say, well, no, that person's not faithful. But what Paul goes on to say is this. We aren't the final judge of all of this. The Lord himself judges who is faithful and who's not faithful. Notice how he goes on to say, as you go down, uh, go down to verse 5. He says, Therefore judge nothing before the time until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the hidden things of darkness and reveal the counsels of the heart. Then each one's praise will come from God. So, here we are. We have found ourselves. We are servants. We have been given a spiritual trust. We are exhorted to be faithful. 
And one day we will stand before the judge who will evaluate whether or not we have been faithful with the spiritual trust that we've been given following the servanthood of our calling. But the rub comes when we try to evaluate ourselves and find out if we truly are faithful. If we look in the mirror and we say, I am exactly what the Lord wants me to be. How will we know? Well, I can tell you how we won't know. The first thing that that emerges from this is this. We're not going to be deceived by public opinion of who we are. See, sometimes public opinion gives us a whole lot more credit than we deserve. There are some people, quite frankly, who look really good on the surface. And, and things look like they are just delightful, wonderful people. And so the opinion of people around you may be that you are just wonderful, but down deep inside, you know that some things are not the way they should be. And yet people think that you're someone really great. And, and they give you accolades. I, I've watched families over the years, and I, I think I may have mentioned this to you in a, our former church. There was particularly one family that people would look at and they'd say, oh, I wish our family was just like they. The truth is the public opinion was much greater than the reality. And sometimes people can look at us because they only see us at our best, don't they? Did you all shower this weekend? Okay. Did you brush your teeth this morning? Yeah. Did, how personal do we want to get now? Did you use your deodorant? Yeah. Boy, I look good on the outside. And then how were things between you and your mate before you got here? Or how were things between the kids and the parents? Dare I ask you guys, how did things go this morning with your parents and you? Don't answer. Okay, no. I get this little, not going to answer. Okay. Sometimes public opinion, what people see, is much greater than the truth. But then it's also the other way. There are times when public opinion. And when I say public opinion, I'm not speaking in the broadest sense, but I'm talking about the people who know you, the people who are around you, the people who see you. Sometimes that public opinion is very negatively distorted. And people have this low opinion of you. And and it can be for a variety of reasons. Sometimes people uh, have problems uh, that have come up, maybe in a business dealing or something like that, and so they have a low opinion of you, and maybe it's because there have been some interpersonal conflicts or difficulties, and they have this low opinion of you. But the fact of the matter is that public opinion is not really at issue here. It's not part of our being faithful as servants and as stewards. And the way we know is because look at the public opinion concerning the person of Jesus Christ. How did people think of him? Well, as he was growing up, 
we were studying in our Sunday school class this morning about how he had been growing in favor both with God and with man. He was developing as a young man who was the embodiment of God, who was also perfect man. And so in his deity, he knew all that there was to know, but in his humanity, he was developing, he was growing, he was he was increasing in stature. He was increasing in wisdom. And so the human part of Jesus, the incarnation of, of God the Son, there was this development and people thought very well of him because he was well behaved. He never committed a sin. Think of what that would be like, parents, if your children never committed a sin. You would look at them and do you know what you'd say? Whose are you? (laughs) Because you didn't get that from me. Until the day that Jesus revealed himself for who he was. The Savior. Who came to deliver mankind from the penalty and the ultimate power of sin. And he invaded the world that was so comfortably made about a religious system. And it was also made in a very rebellious form of lifestyle that people didn't want to give up. And here is Christ calling to people to repent, to turn away from their sin and to look at him for who he is and to believe in him as their Messiah. What did the people think about him? Here's what they said. He's a great teacher. They would come to him. They would call him rabbi. They would say that, that he taught as no man before him ever taught because he taught with authority. Then they would say, he's demon-possessed. And they would look at him and they would say, he casts out demons by the power of Satan himself. And Jesus responded to that, that any house that's divided against itself will fall and really verified the fact that he certainly was not demon-possessed. There were those who said he is a rebel. Uh, When the Romans uh, came to arrest him, they thought he was one of the rebel leaders who was trying to overthrow the Roman government. And there had been others who had preceded him and and some that came after him as well. And they looked at him and they said, well, he's a rebel. There were others because he would interact with and he would join together in in a fellowship with people who were sinful. He He would go and be part of their events and so they called him a glutton and a drunkard. Now that's the public opinion of Jesus. But then there were those that said no. He's the Messiah. He's the one who had been promised. And as they looked at him and they saw him for who he was, they were beginning to understand that this truly is the one who God had predicted would be coming to be the Savior. But generally speaking, public opinion wasn't so hot. And the truth is, people may not understand you. Have have any of you ever been misunderstood? Have you ever felt like, 
why do those people feel that way about me? That's, that's not who I am. Have you ever gotten yourself into a situation like that? Where, where you know that the way people think about you is not the reality? And there's, there's really not much you can say that's ever going to change that. You just have to live it out and show that you're a servant. And you have a spiritual trust. See, the problem with public opinion is this. People don't know everything. People have a tendency to look on the outward appearance. But God looks at the heart. And he understands not only the behavior and the actions in which we involve ourselves, but he also understands the very motives that cause us to do the things that we do. And sadly, when the world looks at you, when your friends look at you, when people around you look at you, they don't see what's really going on in here. They only see the outward expression and they don't understand that they don't have all the knowledge of why you're doing what you're doing. Let me ask this. Do you ever judge people that way? You you just look at what they're doing instead of saying, wait a minute. There may be something else behind this. And I don't know what it is. So it would be better for me to withhold judgment and allow the Lord to be the one that judges. Wouldn't it be better if we all lived that way? Yeah. Yeah, it would. Sometimes the the friends that we have, they have... um, they have spiritual blindness as to what is right and what's wrong. This past week, Debbie and I went camping. And uh, we went over to a state park called Mayaka River State Park. If any of you have ever seen that, it's really neat. Uh, first thing people say, where is that? It's right outside Sarasota. And so it's, it's not far from there. And so we, we just had a great time there and one of the things that happens when you're camping is people start talking to you and one gentleman came to me and he came across and it was the evening and we just started chatting and we found out a lot of things about each other in that that brief chat and um, he's talking to me about the fact that he was a lutheran who had been part of a search committee for a pastor and i explained to him that i'm a baptist pastor and little by little we were able to just kind of work the gospel in and of course he would give head knowledge to all of that then out of the blue he makes this comment he says what do you think about that gay thing (laughs) um i told him i said you know I was going to make some jokes here, but I probably shouldn't. Uh, and, and you might think that I was going to make jokes about gays. No, no. I was going to make jokes about misunderstandings. So let me go right to the heart of things. I said, first of all, it's often thought among those who are Bible-believing Christians that we have um, an animosity toward those who are homosexual, those who are gay. I said, I love gay people. I do. Christ died for them. And I am not afraid of gay people. I am not homophobic, which is, I, I, it's amazing how the people who say we're, we're not um, tolerant and so forth, 
how they will use words that just kind of bury you. Homophobic. No, I'm not homophobic. But the action of homosexuality is sin. Just as heterosexual immorality is sin. Okay? I'm not going to legitimize heterosexual immorality. I'm not going to legitimize it. There is one place for intimacy between a man and a woman, and that's within the bonds of marriage, not before marriage, not outside of marriage. It is within marriage. Anything else is sin. And homosexual behavior is sin no matter when and where it is committed, but just because a person has those tendencies does not mean that he is in any worse condition than a heterosexual who is not controlling himself. Does that make sense? Okay, I hope you understand what I'm saying. We all need a Savior. We all need our sins forgiven. And just as heterosexual individuals need to have their desires brought under the control of the Holy Spirit, so a homosexual must have his or her desires brought under the control of the Holy Spirit. What's the difference? We're sinners and we need a Savior. So, this gentleman approaches this subject and then he told me that he was just with some friends that he greatly admires and the friends, the one lady was a lesbian. And I could tell at that point that our conversation was not going to go in a very positive way if we stayed on that track. Why? Now this, I know this is going to sound arrogant. I don't mean it to be arrogant, but he didn't understand what the Bible said about it. He didn't understand. You see, people today can be influenced by the correctness of what's going on around them or... We can be regulated by the word of God. That's, that's what it comes down to. It's one or the other. And you see, some people will misjudge you and they will say, oh, you are a hateful person because you just said that homosexual behavior is sin. Yeah, it is. Because God said it is. But he also said jealousy is sin. He also said envy is sin. He also said, lying is sin. So let's not get on our high horse and act as if some people are horrible, worse sinners than we are. We're terrible sinners. You understand that? And we need a Savior. And if we've accepted Christ, we found a Savior who forgives our sin and whom God will accept based upon our relationship with His Son, no matter what sins we've committed, because the Savior is greater than any sin we could possibly commit. Even Hitler could have been saved. Because the Savior is greater than the worst possible sin imaginable. And see, people don't see things that way. They, they don't regulate their perspectives, their point of view, based upon the Word of God. And so, public opinion is very deceptive. What do people think about you? You know what? It does matter in some respects, but in the final wash, it really doesn't matter. What matters is what the Lord thinks of you. That's what matters. So don't be deceived by 
public opinion. Let me go on. Don't be deceived by self-evaluation. Ooh, wait a minute. Do you mean that we can deceive ourselves if we look at ourselves and evaluate our behavior? Absolutely. Absolutely we can deceive ourselves. You say, well, I, I live by this rule. I let my conscience be my guide. Is the conscience a good guide? It is if it is appropriately developed. But the conscience is developed by a whole variety of different external factors. It's developed by the things that we are taught. It is developed by the culture in which we live. That's why women in India could throw children into the Ganges and think they were doing something that was worshipping their God. Their conscience would allow them to do that because the conscience was mistaught. You see, even for a Christian, the, the Bible tells us that the conscience, though it is part of the internal evidence that there is a God, can also be so misdirected because the conscience can be defiled. We can behave in such a way as to cause our conscience to become ineffective by virtue of defiling it, by living lives that are apart from what God's Word has to say. We can have consciences that are, and the, the, the biblical word that's used is seared. Have you ever seared your skin? If you get a, a, a burn, you, somebody lays a hot iron on your skin and the skin becomes seared and then eventually it, it heals, but it doesn't heal the way it had before. And now you can poke at that and you don't even feel it anymore. What the Lord is saying is this, you can live in such a way as to make your conscience ineffective because you've seared it with behavior that is inappropriate and you've done it long enough to be able to say, okay, th this must not be bad because my conscience doesn't bother me. I, I don't feel guilty about this. <laughs> it's seared. Your conscience is not a good guide. It can be seared. It can be defiled. Do you know that Paul is later in this book going to tell us that it can also be very weak? In fact, he's going to tell us that people with the weak conscience are just the opposite of what we would think them to be. Here's the way he puts it. I'll tell you now because it's going to be months before we get to the 14th chapter. There were people who could not eat meat that was offered to idols. And the reason they couldn't eat that meat that was offered to idols was because culturally there was a belief that if the pagans took the sacrifices that they offered and then they took the meat that they had cut and brought it as a sacrifice to their God, that something evil occurred in that meat. The spirit, the demonic spirit of that idol would enter that meat so that if you ate that meat, you would then be putting within yourself the influence of that demonic spirit of the God that was being worshipped. Those people had weak consciences. Somebody would look at that and say, oh, that's the way we ought to live, by rules. 
Don't eat meat that was offered to idols. No, the people with the strong conscience were able to look at that and say, you know what, there's nothing wrong with that meat. It's cheap. I can get a really good cut of meat and not pay a whole lot because that's been offered to the idol and now they're bringing it out and they're selling it and so I can really get some good meat. And the person with the strong conscience understands nothing bad has happened to that meat. It is still, well, nothing worse than the cholesterol that we'll give you. But back in Jesus' day, they didn't think about that. And so you could you could eat that meat. But then the Lord said this, for the sake of the person with the weak conscience, those of you who have the strong conscience don't eat that meat. Because you will cause the brother to stumble. You will cause him to partake with you. And for him it will violate his conscience. So don't do it. Your conscience might be strong. But your brother's conscience is weak. Now do you understand where this argument is going? Paul is telling us this. I don't even evaluate myself based upon my conscience. Look at what he says. Go back to this passage and look down here at verse 3. Or, yeah, verse 3. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by a human court. That's the public. Now look at what he goes on to say. In fact, I do not even judge myself. What? He doesn't judge himself. That that seems to be a bit of a contradiction, doesn't it? Well, it does until we go further. So stay with me. He goes on into the next verse and says, For I know of nothing against myself. In other words, if I look at my conscience, (laughs) my conscience is clear. I'm not bothered by the, the things that I do. And it could be that his conscience has been defiled or that his conscience has been seared, or that he just has a weak conscience. And so he can live in this realm of his awareness to his conscience and say, hey, I've got nothing against myself. Everything is fine. I can I can do pretty much what I want as long as I don't hurt my own conscience. Until you get to verse 4. For I know of nothing against myself, yet I am not justified by this. Just because I don't think there's anything wrong with me does not mean there's nothing wrong with me. Wow. This is starting to get a little bit heavy now. See, my conscience can be clear. But that doesn't mean everything I'm doing is okay. In addition to that, I might even have some blind spots. There might be things within my life that I don't see about myself, but others see it. Have you ever had somebody come to you and say, you know what, what what you said there or what you did there was wrong. And you say, no, it wasn't, there was nothing wrong with that. And they say, oh, yes, it was. And, And then you begin to find out that you have a blind spot in a particular area and you don't even see that what you're doing is wrong. Does anybody understand what I'm saying here? Do you get that? Uh, can I, can I tell you where I see it most often? I see it with young people. They will make a statement like this. Well, I'm never going to be like my mom. 
I'm never going to be like my dad. And they act just like their mom. And they act just like their dad. Has that happened to you, any of you? I, <laughs> now, if you had a good mom, I guess that, that's okay. But but you ever notice how you don't want to be like somebody and then you turn out and, and you're just like them? And the very thing that you find in other people that bother you are often the things that you yourself are guilty of? My wife used to think that I talk a lot. Until it became very clear that she talked far more than I did. Oh, no, wait a minute. Was it the other way around? I guess it might have been the other way around. The blind spot. Or, what about self-justification? Someone commits a sin against you. And you talk to them about that. And they recognize, yeah, that, that's something I shouldn't have done. And then here is how the apology will go. Oh, I'm so sorry for saying that to you. Or I'm so sorry for doing that. But you know, I've been without sleep for the last couple of days. And now all of a sudden we begin to justify ourselves. Instead of just saying, I sinned, will you forgive me? We become pretty, pretty proficient at self-justification, don't we? Um, boy, there's so many different areas that I could get into in this, but they're self-convicting. Can you justify speeding? Okay, next point. (laughs) What Paul said is this, I don't even judge myself. Now, it doesn't mean that he's contradicting what else he said in Scripture. But here's where it goes. What we do rely upon is the absolute standard of God's Word. This now becomes the only way we can obey when we gather around the Lord's table. Let a man examine himself. Wait a minute. Didn't Paul say I don't examine myself? Yes, he did. He said my conscience does not become the standard by which I live. The self-justification doesn't become the standard by which I live. In fact, I don't even give myself room for blind spots. What I do is I go back to the revealed will of God as it is given in His Word, and I examine myself in light of what He says. Have I been a gossip? Don't try to justify it. Confess it and forsake it. Have I been immoral? Say, oh, nobody in here would be like that. Oh, yeah? Have I yielded my eyes to pornography 
and justified it by saying, it improves my love life with my mate. See, when I come to God's word, I will put no evil thing before me. Now his word has made the judgment, not me. Because see, I can justify my own self. But his word says that it is just as wrong to gossip as it is to kill. Now his word becomes the judge. See, his word is objective. His word gives us absolute truth. You'll hear people make statements like this. There is no such thing as absolute truth. Do you have any problem with that statement? What's wrong with it? It's an absolute statement. It's like saying, what I am telling you right now doesn't exist. There's no such thing as absolute truth. So the moment I say that, I have just violated the statement itself by making an absolute statement. Let me tell you something. There is absolute truth. And the absolute truth is recorded for us in the Word of God. And it is eternal. It is unchangeable. It's immutable. It will not change. And when God says, this is sin, this is sin. And when he says, this is righteous, then this is what's righteous. And I don't judge myself on how I feel. I judge myself based upon what he has revealed in his word. And now I begin to evaluate myself the right way. And guess what? I found myself. I'm a servant with a spiritual trust who is called to be faithful. And to live a life that is honoring and glorifying to God in spite of public opinion, in spite of self-evaluation, but based solely on what God's Word has to say. Now, I I see I kind of confused things up there um, in the outline, and some of you are filling it out, so let me just give this to you. The the third, by absolute standard of God's word, it's revealed standard, it's an absolute standard. You don't pick and choose. And it's an immutable standard, okay? We're all set with that. I don't want us to get hung up on the uh, the technicalities here. What I do want you to understand is this. When you allow the word of God to be your judge, there's some things that happen that are really good. You ready for them? Here they come. First, your faithful service will be vindicated. Is that not good to know? Hey, those people, they, they think I'm terrible. They think I'm doing, doing wrong. Lord, you know the, the, the motive of my heart was to do what's right. Do you know what the Lord says? I am going to look at the behavior of your life and not only see what you've done on the outside, but I'm going to look at what was going on in the inside. How do I know that? Well, I don't know anything except what God's Word has to say. Let's go back. Go down here to verse 4. For I know nothing against myself, yet I am not justified by this. But 
He who judges me is the Lord. Therefore, judge nothing before the time until the Lord comes, who will bring, who will both bring to light the hidden things of darkness. Will there be inappropriate behavior revealed? Absolutely. Will there be bad motives revealed? Yes. But that's not the direction that Paul is heading in this. He is heading a completely different way. Look at what he goes on to say. He says, it will bring to light the things of darkness and reveal the counsels of the hearts. All that people overlook, God will reveal. Sometimes you think the only thing I've ever done for the Lord has been quietly done and nobody knows. There's people who are always in front of other people. That that preacher that we had there at Grace Baptist Church who would get up on Sundays and he would rant and he would rave. He's always out there in front and people see him. And so he's known for what he does. But I've been working hard in the background and nobody knows how I've taken care of the kids. I've changed the stinky diapers. I've wiped the snotty noses. I've just had a horrible day. And I did it though, Lord, because I want to glorify you. Or I vacuumed the carpet so that when the people come in, the place is clean and the pews don't have old scraps of paper that the people leave there on Sunday mornings because they don't want to take their bulletin along. (laughs) Some of you will get that later. And the person who is just doing things in the background What they've done will be brought to light. And look at what the Lord then says. Then, oh, wait a minute. And he says, and he will reveal the counsels of the heart. The word there for counsels are the motives, the things that motivate us. Then each one's praise will come from God. Is that not great news? Do you know what the Lord says? In spite of what people think about you, in spite of what you even allow yourself to do, the God who knows the hearts and judges the motives of men will one day expose the deepest parts of our being. He will show that which we have done for His honor and glory. He will will bring... To, to light the motives by which we have done things when those motives have been pure. And then he will say, I am going to praise you for what you've done. Can you imagine God praising you? Is that what he says? Like right now, we're kind of happy when people look at us and they say, boy, you really did a nice job out there in, in the entryway when you, when you made all those nice decorations and stuff. That was really nice. That, that's, a, that's a pleasant thing to have somebody say that. Or, or, boy, when you sent that note of encouragement to me, that meant so much. I am really grateful for that because I could tell your heart was touched by what I'm going through. But do you understand that God says, I'm going to look at those things and one day I'm going to say to you, I am so happy with what you did. You did a great job. Because you found yourself. You're a servant. 
you have a spiritual trust. And everything you do isn't going unnoticed. I know. I know how hard you studied to teach that class. I know how you went to my word when your friend lost a loved one and you gave them words of comfort from my word and nobody else knew. I know. Good job. Good job. You were a faithful servant. Were you? Let's stand. Father, your word is truth. There are so many things around us that are able to deceive us. The opinions of friends. The opinions of people that we rub shoulders with. Sometimes they're very deceptive. Father, our own hearts are deceptive. We can't even tell sometimes when we're doing wrong. But your word is forever established. It is absolute. It will never change. I pray, Father, that we would make your word the standard by which we live. So that as you reveal the deep things of our hearts. And you bring them to light. You will be able to praise us. You, the creator, will praise us for the things that we've done in your power, for your glory. Thank you. Amen.